All right, Jesse, that aristocrat adventure was a great way to cap our 100th episode last week. What's the story this time around? Today, we will be following one heroic Australian detective's 15-year-long quest to deliver justice for the families of two women who lost their lives at the hands of the same monstrous man. I'm Annie Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about heinous acts, heroic detectives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you guys so much for all of your reviews this week. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the cool things you're going to get. Speaking of Patreon, since our last recording a couple of weeks ago, we've welcomed a bunch of new Patreons. We would like to thank and shout out to Nicole B, Monsita, VR, which is VR, because <laughs> we know V from the discussion group, Stacey B. And Ashley R. And I think by now we should have our Patreon bonus episode out where we talked about the craziest legal defenses of all time. So definitely check that out if you are one of our patrons. And if not, maybe think about joining. I'm going to be releasing another bonus episode, which will be more of a traditional episode very soon. Andy and I are going to be recording it hopefully this weekend. So it should be out to you guys soon. And it is Such an amazing case and something that I could not do on just traditional love murder. It's a little bit different, and I think you're going to really like it. Okay, so enough about Patreon. Let's move forward, Andy, and start talking about today's episode. The case began for Detective Peter Seymour in 1989 in Mount Druitt, a suburb to the west of Sydney, Australia. It was familiar terrain for the young detective, who, at the age of 27, was already a nine-year veteran of the police force. The Druitt was a tough area, with high unemployment rates and a hotbed of drug-related incidents, domestic violence, and racial tension. But it also had salt-of-the-earth people who worked so hard to support their families and love their community. Every day in the Druitt, you could expect the unexpected. But even Detective Seymour was hardly prepared for what would occur that day. Nor did he know that from the moment he was handed a missing persons file, that his life would be changed forever. The missing person was a young mother named Jean Angela Keir, who had disappeared the previous year. Her husband, Thomas Keir, contended that she had run off with another man, while her parents, who had filed the report, feared otherwise. Peter and his partner, Detective Mick Lyons, had tried to visit the husband several times at his white-paneled home that was enclosed with a mesh fence, but to no avail. Every time Peter pulled up and knocked at the door, he had an instinctive feeling that something or someone in the house wasn't quite right. 
A few weeks after his last attempt, Peter managed to spot a light on in the home while he and another officer were doing a patrol at 10 o'clock in the evening. This time, Tom Keir came to the door. He was a tall man in his early 30s with an almost unremarkable face. (laughs) This is going to sound brutal, but it is true. His most defining feature was one large, bushy eyebrow that ran across his entire face with no break in between. Oh, Frida Kahlo moment. It is. He looks like less like Frida, beloved Frida, and more like Sam the Eagle from The Muppet Show or like Bert from Sesame Street. Oh my God. Let's, Sam let's the put Eagle. that, those images. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's what we're working with here. Got it. Got it. Other than a worried quick glance to the side of his yard, Tom Keir seemed calm and collected while discussing his estranged wife's disappearance. I've told the police everything I know. Jeannie ran off with some bloke. I've spoken to her on the phone a couple times, but she hasn't come around. When pressed, Keir admitted that no one else in Jean's family had received similar phone calls. In fact, no one else had heard from her at all. Peter frowned, thinking, something is not adding up here. She runs off with another guy, and the only person she contacts after the fact is the jilted husband? Bloke, Jesse. Bloke. Bloke, yeah. I wish I could do an Aussie accent so bad because there's so many brilliant moments in this in this book and the script, and I'll tell you about the book in a little bit. But yes, he runs off with another bloke, and the only person she contacts after the fact is the jilted husband, not her sister, not her mother, not her best friend. No. We'd be on the phone together the whole time. 100%. Yeah. This is just not possible. Just as Peter was about to ask some more pointed questions, a loud crash of smashing metal came hammering down behind him. A car had completely backended the police cruiser, crumpling the rear instantly. When one male passenger staggered out, he said, hey, mate, he hit the back of a police car. And his friend, the driver, who was clearly intoxicated, (laughs) tried to pull a runner, jumping out of the vehicle and racing down the street. Stop. But like wasted. Wasted. So like zigzagging. He zigs, he zags. He kind of falls over for a little bit. So Peter immediately was forced to run after this guy. So he stops interviewing Thomas Keir, runs after this drunk driver And the drunk driver is like running away from him. And in the book, so today, guys, we use the book Seven Bones by Peter Seymour, the detective himself. No way. I love it. It's great, too. And a writer, a professional writer, he worked with Jason K. Foster. And in it, he's like, well, luckily, I I played a bit of footy. And so I could... I wasn't that in shape, but I could I could still run and tackle. And so he gets the guy down on the ground, but the drunk driver pops back up after that and he starts taking a swing at Peter. So at that point he ducks and he manages to miss the guy trying to hit him and he tries to land a blow himself, but he ends up slipping in the gravel drive and kind of it glances off of the drunk driver's chin. At that point he's a little off kilter. So the drunk driver hauls back and hits him directly in the eye. I mean, lands a really good one. He is seeing stars at this point. Oh, no. So he's got the little birdies flying, and he finally gets up, gets his composure back, and manages to tackle the guy once more, get him on the ground, and get him cuffed. And only then does he realize that his partner is fighting the other passenger. 
And so they're grappling with each other too. But finally, both of the police officers end up getting these guys under control. And pretty soon after that, these two guys were in a paddy wagon being hauled off to jail and charged with drunk driving, resisting arrest, and assaulting a police officer. That's a lot in one day. It was an action-packed opening, I would say. (laughs) So Peter was sporting a pretty nasty shiner at this point and still reeling when Tom Keir came off his porch and offered to give a statement as he had witnessed all of the mayhem that just happened. Bloody good thing, too, Peter later thought, because his testimony, that of Thomas Kears, secured the two assholes' convictions. In the aftermath of the violence and the subsequent criminal proceedings for those two men, Jean Angela Keir, the young wife who had maybe actually just ran off with a new boyfriend, was almost completely forgotten, at least by the police, at least for now. And her file got tossed back to missing persons until two years later when a burned corpse was discovered in Tom Keir's house. Uh, which begs several questions, but the first of which was had they finally found Jean? And if it wasn't Jean, then who was it? Yeah, I'd say. It would take Detective Peter Seymour nearly 15 years of painstaking work to finally deliver justice for the victims and their loved ones, during which time he suffered from bitter disappointments and shocking outcomes, as well as a ghostly presence that urged him on at every stop along the way. Andy's usually the one who's more into the supernatural. I am. And so I'm excited for you to hear the story, Andy, because I got serious, serious chills while listening and reading this book. I had the Audible and I read it on my Kindle as well. And this book is so interesting, guys. It really does read more like a fictionalized detective story than a true crime book. And I have read a shite ton of them. (laughs) Actually, both of genres. So I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's just this deeply personal account of a case that really did burrow deep into Peter's soul and caused him to almost lose his sanity, his family life along the way because he was so devoted to finding justice for these women that we're going to talk about today. Which is amazing. It is. And, you know, he talks a lot about some of the loved ones involved, particularly Jean's mother, Christine. And it really becomes a story of, like, grit, determination, and enduring hope. The hope and the belief that every victim will someday have their moment and have closure. And that's all we can all hope for. Yeah. I mean, we could all hope that people would stop committing these sort of crimes, but... That'd be nice. That would be the number one hope. (laughs) World peace, no murders. But third is that every victim has their time to be avenged and justice is served, certainly. So yeah, because I think Peter's perspective is so important to the story and because the narrative in this book is just so compelling, I decided that y'all are going to get a virtual ride along today and we are going to let the case unfold from Peter's perspective as the detective rather than the usual way where I give you guys a lot of backstory first. Okay, great. Yeah, and I I just think it's really interesting too because when we tell these stories and when journalists tell these stories and writers, I think that we want people to have a full, robust portrait of 
the people that we're talking about, especially, you know, the people who were most likely wonderful people and met the wrong person, especially in our cases, when a detective goes into these things, they've got no such portrait. They have got like a rude sketch that they don't even know if it's true about the person because they're getting it secondhand from other people. Yeah. And then they have to like an old Italian master fill in these details little by little. And this was definitely an interesting process to write the podcast in a different way. And it made me have so much more appreciation for the hard work that detectives do. You're so sweet, Jesse. Two years after Peter first laid eyes on Thomas Keir, he was in his own backyard playing with his three-year-old daughter, Ashley, and their pet German Shepherd when he was struck by a severe sense of deja vu. A scene flashed in his mind of a strangely familiar white-paneled home and a vision of a different German Shepherd altogether gnawing on a bone large enough to be a human femur. Not a good sign. Suddenly, the phantom dog spooked and ran as though being chased, and the scene disappeared. Weird, he thought, as his wife, Sue, yelled from the house that he had a phone call. Sue was a stunning woman and an incredible mother and wife. The couple had met and married shortly after meeting in 1985. Some now six years later, Peter still smiled when he heard the sound of her voice. But right now, she wasn't so happy. He could tell that it was work calling him in. And family life always had to take a backseat to the missing and the murdered. And I think you guys will see throughout the story, too, that Peter is a great, great narrator. And, you know, the Jason Foster, who wrote this book with him, is an incredible writer as well. Peter is very empathetic. His wife, Sue, actually shortly after they were married, was viciously stalked by some guy who had become obsessed with her. To the point where he was arrested and he did serve jail time. Oh, my God. Yeah, Peter was already a police officer at that point. And even in his capacity as a police officer, he felt so powerless to help her and scared for her well-being all the time that it really did make him so much more in touch with what victims and victims' families go through. He also, throughout the course of the story, will have two more daughters. So this man has three daughters. And a wife. And a wife. So he is just surrounded by women. And I think also there's a sensitivity you have when you have daughters, especially, and you're working with female victims. He just has a very unique, empathetic perspective, which I really liked hearing about. So this phone call, the one that came in while he was having this deja vu, was about a body found in a burned out house. Now, they gave him the address, and he was already on the road when he realized why it sounded so familiar. This was the same address that he had been called to two years previously when he had been on the missing person's call and gone to Thomas Keir's house. So creepy. So creepy. And his first thought was, okay, so she must have come back, and this has to be her. Maybe she did run away because they had a troubled marriage. She returned at some point, and obviously something went terribly wrong. When he arrived on the scene, he met his partner, Mick, and Mick briefed him that a female body had been discovered face down on the bed in the master bedroom, very, very badly burned, burned to the point that she was almost beyond recognition. Furthermore, a cord from a bedside table lamp was still wrapped tightly around her charred throat. There you go. 
But yeah, there was no question in this case. This was 100% a homicide. An autopsy would later prove that there was, of course, no soot or, you know, smoke inhalation in her lungs. Yes, she was already. She was already deceased when she was lit on fire. So at that point, Peter goes, ah, so this is where Jean Keir's been, hey? And Vic looked at him and said, what are you talking about, mate? This is Rosalina Keir. Oh, God. He was like, what? And he goes, yeah, Tom Keir's wife. And he goes, well, Jean was Tom Keir's wife. And he goes, no, this is Tom Keir's second wife, Rosalina. So at that point, Peter's like, we've got one wife that disappeared, allegedly, and then we've got another one who has been murdered with a cord around her neck and set on fire all in three years' time. Yeah. And where's little Tommy? Speak of the devil, he was on site at the time in a medical van where he was receiving treatment for mild signs of shock and some small cuts to his face and neck. Fingernail cuts? Like defensive wounds. Exactly, Andy. Tom told the police that his marriage to Rosalina, who went by the nickname Rosalie, was solid and happy, and that that day they had been planning to go to one of her family's parties. It was a birthday party for her uncle, and it was later that afternoon. So he claimed that morning he had taken his son out to get cigarettes, which was like at kind of at like a convenience store type store down the street a little bit. But then he had come back, left his son in the car, and he had run in the house. At that point, he talked very briefly to Rosalie about what he should get for her uncle when he went to the shops. Okay. The bottle shop? Yeah. So he's going to the shops. He's going to get him some shirts and a birthday card. So he said that she told him what to buy. He went back across the road to where the car was waiting with his son, got in the car. He goes away to the shops. He said that he had no idea what happened. She was perfectly alive and happy when he left her. When he returned home from shopping and he had all of the receipts in his pockets, of course, naturally, for the things he had bought, he found his house on fire, the fire brigade there, and the police. And he said he was completely stunned that this had happened at all and didn't even know what to do because he did truly love Rosalie so much. He did admit that his previous wife had left him and that this relationship had been such a boon after she had left him for another man. He also admitted that the contents of the house and the house itself did have insurance. And so the insurance company, just on the property damage, was expected to pay it around $85,000. And the life insurance policy on Rosalie would be paying off $80,000. Of course. So he admitted that and he acted somewhat shocked. He did seem very as natural as somebody in this situation can be. It wasn't one of those cases that we hear all the time where people are like either too dramatic or don't seem like they care at all. He seemed very appropriate. But despite that, despite his proper pretend emotions, all of the investigators absolutely thought that his story stank to high heaven. Do you think that he did such a good job acting because his eyebrows couldn't, like, express as much? Like, it was like they just... Imagine Peter Gallagher, but only he has one. It just never stops. It's just one very thick, fuzzy caterpillar. It's like the caterpillar from the children's book who ate too much and got very, very fat and hairy the and laying atop caterpillar? his face. The hungry, hungry caterpillar just, 
just never turned into a butterfly. No, no, not this guy. This one just laid on this guy's ugly face for the rest of his life. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes, I know. I know that you love a whodunit, but I think you can tell by my ire that we have a villain already in this story. Wait, who? <laughs> his neighbor was a man named Max Wormleton, who said that he did see Tom Keir return with his son, enter the home, then after a little while, leave again and drive off. Less than 10 minutes later, he noticed smoke and he had smelled it earlier, but he thought that Tom Keir was doing something in his backyard. So this guy was up to weird shit in his backyard all the time. And he like burned a lot of rubbish back there. So he's like, maybe that weirdo is just like burning rubbish again. But then he noticed that there was actually smoke billowing up from under the eaves of the house, about 10-ish minutes from when he saw him leave the home. At that point, he alerted another neighbor. The neighbor's wife called the fire brigade and the two men started trying to put it out. They thought at first that maybe the child was still in the home. They didn't know that the son was in the car with the father. So they're trying to get him out. The blaze is going crazy. They can't do it. They start trying to put like their garden hoses in the windows, doing everything they can. But then it got to a point where it was so out of control. And then thankfully the fire brigade showed up and managed to get the flames out. But the house was a burned out shell at that point. Fire spreads so much faster than you can put them out. It's like money. <laughs> it's true. You spend especially, it way faster than you earn it. Especially when accelerant is used, yes. which Detective Peter Seymour noticed right away upon entering the scene that it was full of the smell of petrol or gas to us Yanks over here. Going on, neighbor Max also said that Kier was a strange bloke who buried weird stuff in his yard, including car engines, car panels, gates, lumps of concrete, and even once a 44-gallon drum. Huh. At that point, a feeling like electricity went through Detective Seymour's body. He believed almost immediately that Gene's body had been in that 44-gallon drum and that odds were good that if he was able to dig up this man's yard, that he might find her. Oh, God. So he went in to survey the crime scene with the forensic team, and that was when he noticed the overwhelming smell of gas. The forensic team were like, yep, absolutely. Somebody purposely did all of this, clearly. And while he was there, he ended up kind of looking down at this part of the burnt floor where they believe some of the accelerant had been poured. And he once again had this strange sensation. And this time, it wasn't a deja vu. It was that there was a, another presence in the room with him. And it totally ran a shiver up his spine. So the boss decided that homicide would handle Rosalie's murder and that Peter would head the investigation into Jean's disappearance, which was still being treated as a missing person's case at this point. Okay, good. He began by reviewing the original report, which had been filed in May of 1988 by Jean's sister, Heather, and her father, Clifford Strahan. Peter immediately noted that he thought it was odd that Jean's husband wouldn't be the one to file the report as the person who lived with her. And 
then he like went through the file and he found out somebody else had followed up with Peter, not just him. And in that report, he said that he knew for a fact she had gone off with somebody else and that she had made phone calls to him every once in a while sporadically for a while. So he didn't report her missing because she wasn't technically missing. She was calling him. He could not say where she was, though. Detective Peter went to interview Jean's parents to share the grim news that their former son-in-law's new wife had also met an untimely demise. And he also wanted to, of course, get some background on Tom and Jean's relationship. Clifford and Christine welcomed Peter warmly, and he had an immediate affinity for Christine. And it was just like a right of way he knew that they were like they're on a journey together for some reason. It was like a flash of electricity. And they do build a very close relationship in a way that you never want to have a close relationship with somebody. You don't want to have a decade long plus relationship with a man who's investigating your daughter's disappearance. No. But it is a heartwarming relationship nonetheless. And I guess it's good that they did have such a positive relationship because the other option is to have a 10-year-plus relationship with someone who you don't get along with. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, it's one of those things where you don't want to be in a situation altogether. It's kind of like if you had cancer, you don't want to have cancer altogether, but God, I hope you have a really amazing oncologist that you have a warm relationship with. And that was them. It was like in the worst time of their lives, I think Peter was a driving force for good. Yeah. Immediately, they all got on together very well. And when he shared the news that Rosalie had perished, they got extremely emotional. It was unbelievably upsetting to them. And when he was trying to figure out why, they shocked him by saying, we introduced them. Oh, God. Rosalie is actually related to us. She's a second cousin of Jean's. Yep. And she had come to a family wedding in Australia. She's originally from the Philippines. And actually, Rosalie and Jean never met because Rosalie grew up in the Philippines and Jean grew up in Australia. But they were distantly related. And when Rosalie graduated from college in the Philippines, her parents sent her as a graduation present to go to Australia and see some of her relatives there. While she was there, she went to a family wedding and it had been Christine who had actually introduced beautiful young Rosalie to her ex-son-in-law. Oh, no. I mean, he was completely gobsmacked at this point. It is one thing to kill two wives, but to also at the same time kill two members of the same family, his first wife's second cousin. So they weren't nervous at all about him having anything to do with Jean's disappearance? I definitely felt the same way that you are feeling right now when I first, because I was listening to the Audible when we were driving back from Lake Placid, and both Nathaniel and I were like, what? Why would you introduce yeah. your daughter's husband, whom you have doubts about, to another young woman that you care about? Yeah. Why? There are reasons. It still stretches the sense of normal, <laughs> but it, it there are. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So at that point, they feel terribly. I mean, both Rosalie and, and Jean were very young women. They were both unbelievably attractive. I think Jean was a mix of Filipina and Greek and I think like English or something. And Rosalie was Filipina and just 
stunning. They're both very young, very beautiful women. And Rosalie was incredibly smart as well. She had graduated from the Polytechnic University of the Philippines with a degree in accounting. She had a lot going on in her life. And immediately, Christine and Clifford are just completely sick about this. And so she explained that when Jean ran off, she had had at least one dalliance with another man. So there was a past situation where she had had an affair. And the other thing was that Christine knew that she really wanted to get away from Tom, who was rather obsessive about her. And so she kind of thought, it's possible that my daughter actually ran away on this guy. Like in her heart, she didn't think that was the case because she had a three-year-old son and she didn't think she would abandon her three-year-old son. Yeah, no. It just didn't seem right. But she's like, I guess it's possible it happened. So she felt kind of bad. And Tom was a really good actor. So he was acting very upset about the whole thing. And so she's like, well, I guess it would be nice if I introduced him to somebody because I feel bad. Also, maybe Gene will come back if he gets settled down and remarried to somebody and he's not obsessed with her anymore. Maybe she would consider coming home from wherever she is. And then lastly, there was her grandson to consider. She wanted to make sure that he had a strong female presence in his life. And she also wanted to kind of keep Tom closer to her just so she could make sure that nothing weird happened in her grandson's life after her daughter had disappeared. So it's kind of like none of these are great reasons or compelling reasons to introduce a young woman to a man that you think may have had something to do with your daughter's disappearance. But all things together and while you're in a period of grief, you can kind of see how it would happen. Yes, absolutely. This was a very hard interview at first. They got along and, you know, Peter handled it very well. But there was a lot of remorse here. And when they're looking back, hindsight in 2020, they realize that this relationship that their daughter had with this man was never good and it was always suspect. They just hadn't really realized at the time. They just had a gut feeling that they had rather ignored. It had started in 1979 when Christine, which is Jean's mom, had gotten a new job as a machinist and 20-something-year-old Thomas Keir was actually her supervisor at this place. So one night he came to drop off some materials for Christine, who was doing something at home. And 14-year-old Gene answered the door. Oh. This guy's is in, in his like mid-20s at this point, I think. 14 is so young. So, so young. It's not one of those situations when you're looking at like some like, you know, 17-year-old girl and you're like, wow, she looks like kind of an adult. The 14, you're a child. You are still a child. So it was love at first gross sight for Tom, who became absolutely obsessed with this teen. And for Jean, who was very funny, she had a very quick wit and she had a very effervescent personality. She joked to her mom, hey, mom, Frankenstein's here for you, apparently, because of his (laughs) pronounced unibrow. Yeah. But yeah, she was not feeling it at first. Well, because she's a 14-year-old baby. She's a 14-year-old baby. And he did a long con, a long grooming experience with this whole family. Because think about it, he's also Christine's boss, technically. Yeah. Position of power. Uh Uh-huh. And he decided, hey, you know, we could use some part-time help. Why don't you get a job on the weekends? You can work some Saturdays when you're not in school. So she started working in this factory that her mother worked at on Saturdays when it was just the two of them a lot of the time. And he started 
buying her presents and showering her with compliments. And at the time, Christine and Clifford were a little concerned, but they kind of wrote it off as like, it's an innocent flirtation. It's an innocent friendship. But that changed when she was 15 years old and he went to them officially and asked if he could ask her out on a date. And they were like, oh, hell no. Absolutely not. Maybe when she's older, but not right now. She's only 15 years old. Yeah. And then on her 16th birthday, which I should have looked this up. I don't know what the age of consent, but even in the States, there's states where 16 is the age of consent. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's why he was making such a big deal about this. Yeah. But on her 16th birthday, he showed up with 16 red roses for Jean, a bottle of champagne for Christine, and a case of beer for Clifford. Wow. Really doing it. Uh-huh. He was doing it up. And so at that point, Jean really wanted to date him. You know, obviously she had been groomed for nearly two years and they were starting to relent a little bit. They were like, okay, you guys can see each other, but you have to like come to our house when somebody's home. Yeah. And we want to be aware when you're going out and you have, you know, strict curfews of when you want to be home. But of course, she's also a 16 year old girl. They don't listen to your rules. They don't abide by your curfews and they certainly I'm the only 16 year old that listened I did but only because my dad was terrifying yeah also I lived in the middle of nowhere my parents live on like a hundred plus acre farm and our driveway was a quarter mile long to sneak out was really hard work dude I cannot (laughs) imagine your dad did it right he did and he also had some sort of trigger like you know motion detector that turns on a light only it would tell him it would go to his bedroom And so one time, one of my girlfriends did want to sneak out to the end of my driveway to meet her boyfriend, who, by the way, was also in his 20s and shouldn't have been seeing a teenager. And we all crept down the driveway. And just as the pickup truck came to meet my friend and she was about to hop in, my dad came like a bat out of hell. He had an Audi at the time racing down our driveway like and started chasing the guy in the pickup truck until they were like neck and neck in these country roads going a hundred miles per hour. And my dad is like doing the, the meet the parents eyeballs to this guy. (laughs) I see you fingers. I see you. Yeah. That was my one and only attempt at sneaking out. It wasn't even for me. Yeah. So anyway, most 16 year olds, I think do not listen to their parents other than apparently you, because you were so great, Andy and me, because the fear of God lived in my heart. Unfortunately, by the time Jean was 17 years old, she had become pregnant. And at some point when she was 17, he proposed to her. And her parents were not crazy about it, obviously. But they did agree to give their permission for the couple to wed. Okay. Which they did in 1984, which was the same year their son was born and the same year that Jean turned 18. Okay. So Jean was really ecstatic to be a mother. She absolutely adored and worshipped her son. But other than that bright light, very soon after they got married, her life was pretty much a living hell. Oh, my God. All of that romance and all of the wooing and the fun sneaking around and all of the attempts to get her had been really fun. But once she was his wife, he became unbelievably possessive and controlling. He would do things 
like all of a sudden she wasn't allowed to wear a normal bathing suit. So he actually made her mother alter her bathing suits so that it showed absolutely no cleavage. It was like up to her collarbones and alter the like to basically have shorts on. And he would force her to wear that type of bathing suit because he didn't want her showing her body. At one point, he ripped up every picture in the house that had her wearing anything that was short or considered revealing. He started getting irrationally angry if she was goofing around or hugging one of her male cousins. What? A cousin that she had grown up with. Okay. Which seems insane, but when I dated one terrible guy, he came home with me for Christmas and I was literally doing the same thing, like joshing around with my cousin that I were born two months apart. We're like twins. And my boyfriend had the gall to ask my aunt, my cousin's mother, who's that guy? He's related to Jesse, right? Who is he in the family? And she's like, my son, Jesse's cousin? Do you need a family tree? Oh my God. You probably should have made one for him. So I have actually experienced that type of controlling, jealous, defies reason. And Andy, do you want to know the most disgusting part of this? What? He would not let her breastfeed their son. Oh my God. That's horrible. The sickness of thinking that there's something remotely sexual between a mother who is breastfeeding their child yeah, and that that's infant. that's really sad that she didn't get to do that. Is that is off the deep end. In fact, he would get angry with both her and the infant when the child touched his mother's breasts, which okay. that's okay. what they do. Okay. This guy needs therapy, like now. Yeah. So all of this was making Jean beside herself. I was going to say, did Jean tell her family or how did they? She did. She cried to her mother and her sister. She told them that he was jealous of his own son and he didn't want her to have any form of freedom. He had tried to discourage her from getting her driver's license, Mm -hmm. but she did get it, thankfully. He had also tried to block her from going on job interviews, but eventually their financial situation necessitated that she also try to bring in an income. So he had lost on that one. But he was working very, very hard to isolate her from everything and everyone. Yeah. Christine gave Peter the information for Jean's two best friends at this point, too. It was twin sisters that she had grown up with, and their names were Fiona and Shona. And they reported that Jean desperately wanted to leave this abusive relationship. And they said that this was all types of abuse. It was emotional. It was controlling. It was physical. He was beating her up. It was also sexual and reproductively abusive because he was refusing to let her take birth control pills and raping her. Oh, my God. So he wanted to knock her up almost immediately after they had their son because I think he felt like that's when he had ultimate control over her. That's when it looked like she had been somehow conquered by him because she was, you know, full of his child. And this is not what Jean wanted. She wanted to get out of this relationship. So she told her friends that she was hiding her birth control pills, that in order to get them, she would have to say she had a job interview. And these fake job interviews were the only way she could get out of the house. In fact, he was not letting her see Fiona and Shona either. So she'd have to say she was going on a job interview just to go see her best friends. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. And the most terrifying thing was when they were in mixed company, like say that she convinced him to go to a cookout or something with her friends and their partners as well. He would unashamedly talk about how he'd kill her if she left him. And he would do it in this like joking way. But then at some point of the night, it would get serious where he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to fucking kill her. Like, if she leaves me, I'm going to fucking feed her to the dogs. <laughs> and people would be like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever, dude. And then no, one night he was like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, this is how I would do it. I would starve my dogs for weeks. I would kill her. I would chop up her body. I would let them pick all the meat off the bones. And then I would use a grinder to grind up whatever gristle and bone was left. And I would use it to fertilize my lawn. No one. Please tell me that no one didn't take this seriously. I do think that no one really took this seriously. I think that when I was reading this book, I was realizing that this seemed like this is the the 80s in a poor socioeconomic part of a suburb of Sydney. And I think that they had a very different attitude towards people's marriages, which is like, you know, some people are fucking jokesters and some guys hit their wives and... Jean's so strong and she's such a, a big force, big personality that I think she can handle herself. They probably go toe to toe, those two. You know, it's their marriage. You stay out of it. That was what I have found throughout the story, the resounding attitude towards their relationship, especially from other men, it seemed like. Okay. So, yeah, her friends were concerned. Her mother was also slightly concerned. People were concerned, but not to the level that they should have been. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's because at this time there wasn't as much awareness about how dangerous these situations are. So Fiona talked about how she kind of just watched her very independent, very strong friend get weaker and weaker and weaker physically and emotionally because she was just skin and bone by the end before her disappearance. And she was trying. I mean, she was doing everything she could. She was fighting back. She was taking the birth control pills. She was trying to sneak out. She wasn't allowed to wear makeup. So she would like leave makeup at Fiona's and have to like leave the house and go put on makeup at Fiona's and wash it off before she got home. (sighs) It was really, really bad. And so now Peter is getting all of this information and he is starting to learn. Like I said, you're like he's filling in the picture of this woman that no one could believe was being brought down so low by this man because she had been bubbly, fun, effervescent. She was a talented basketball player. She'd always been kind of thin, tall, and leggy. She was cracking jokes. She was just one of those people they all said that was pleasant to be around because she didn't take life so seriously. She made everything fun. Yep. And her friend said in retrospect, like, we just thought she was going to leave eventually because she was so miserable, but it just had to get to that place because she had never known another man in her entire life. Yeah. Since 14, that's been the only guy, you know? Ever, ever that she's ever had. She didn't have any boyfriends before that. That's the only one she knows. So while Peter was working on Jean's case, the homicide team had finally arrested Tom for the murder of his second wife, Rosalie. So while he was in custody, Peter took the opportunity to interview him to try to get something about Jean and find out where she was. So Tom maintained that he knew for sure that Jean had run away with another man. He said that the man that she ran away with was a guy that she had already been cheating on him with. And this guy's name was Carl Needing. 
According to Tom, she had admitted the affair earlier in the year before she disappeared, but she had claimed that it was over. At the beginning of the year, he had discovered that they were still seeing each other. He said at that point, they decided to both get some space from one another. And her parents had like a kind of like a vacation caravan in Kolbara. And Jean went down there with her sister, Heather, and her sister's boyfriend just to get some space away. Yeah. Yeah. It just happened that her birthday, Jean's birthday, occurred while she was down in Kolbara. And he had sent her flowers. And at that point, he said, now this is all his report. He said, I sent her flowers. And she called me. She sounded miserable. She said she wanted to come home. So I went to go get her, but when I got there, all of a sudden she had changed her mind and then we start fighting whether she's going to come with me or not. So, you know, I did the natural thing and I just picked my screaming, kicking, fighting wife up and I stuffed her in the car and I drove away with her. And yeah, yeah, she tried to get out of the moving vehicle, but she got in later on her own accord. Uh, <laughs> this is not a normal story, sir. No. No. Yeah, and he's totally just like playing this off because he has to because there were witnesses. He knows that Heather and her boyfriend are going to say the same story, what they witnessed. So he's like, yeah, you know, we're just like fighting. It's a thing we do. You know, she screams. I grab her. I throw her in the car. You know, it's just our, our shtick. It gets worse though, Andy, because then he describes a moment where they're driving home and they're talking about how they're going to fix the marriage apparently. And he's saying, I'm going to forgive you for the affair. And she's saying, I'm sorry. Then they pull over to a gas station so that they can both go to the bathroom. He goes in the men's room. She goes in the ladies' room. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. She's not there. He finds out later, after getting an attendant to go in, that she has disappeared. In her desperation to get away from this man, brave Jean has crawled through the restroom window and ran to a different highway road and hitchhiked Miles and miles to get to her so-called lover's house, this guy, Carl. Oh, my God. So scary. This is not a normal no. reaction. This is somebody who's terrified. Yes. So basically, he says then that he had actually talked to Carl before. So he, he knew that Carl was also ready to end this extramarital relationship as well. And he figured that's where his wife was. So he called Carl at Carl's home and said, is my wife there? And he said, oh, you know what? She just showed up on my doorstep. What do you want me to do, mate? You want me to bring her home? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. We have some stuff to work out in our marriage. And so Carl, her lover, <laughs> drove her back to their house where her psychotic husband Abusive. was her. Abusive husband. Yeah. Just delivered her right back to his doorstep. Yeah, no. At that point, Tom was like, hey, Carl, you want to come in and have a beer? And Carl was like, yeah, peace, bye, no, I want none of this messy situation anymore. And he just left. He just left Gene there. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. And so Tom's story is that after this, they very calmly, because everything has been so calm in this story, he very calmly talked to her. She apologized. They talked more. She said, oh, I just had to officially end it with Carl, but we're going to work on our relationship and I love you. And then she went to bed and he said that the next day he went to work and she disappeared. She just left. And she called him later and said, actually, I can't do it. I'm in love with Carl and I had to run away with, her, with him. So I'm gone now. Bye. So if they know that she's with a guy named Carl, can't they just go talk to Carl? Yes. Okay. And she was not with that guy, Carl. No. 
So he goes on to tell the police that a few weeks after she had left him, she called to tell him that she was pregnant and that he didn't need to worry. It wasn't his baby. It was another guy's. Now, he said, at this point, I don't know if she's still with Carl, so I'm assuming it's Carl's, but it could be anybody's. It's not mine. That's all I know. And then he said that later she called him again to let him know that the baby had arrived. And at this point, Peter, the detective, is going, well, so did she call her mother and her sister and her best friend to share the happy news that she had had another child? And he goes, I don't know, maybe you got to ask them. She had not, obviously, which defies reason as well. And then he asked him, hey, why didn't you say that she's missing? Your wife ran off on you. You don't know where she is. Even if you think maybe she's alive, she still is gone out there and you don't know if she's safe or not. Mother of your child. Yeah, the mother of your child. You have a responsibility to figure out where she is. And he's like, well, you know, like, I didn't think she was missing. And number two, I did try. I did go to the police station and I said, my wife took off on me a little while ago. And should I report that? And they said, no, only her family can, which is a lie. Of course, a husband is your family. You don't need a blood relative to declare you missing. So Peter knew that was a lie. So he's just lying, lying left and right. And even though he's a good actor, you cannot act your way out of ridiculous lies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another thing that he told him that defied any rational thought was that he's like, well, did she ever come back? Did you ever actually see her? You had these phone calls, but did you see her? And he's like, no, but I know she was in the house at some point because she snuck in and returned her engagement and wedding ring. Why would she do that? If she has no job, she snuck in. She creeped into she creeped into the house. And he goes, yeah, I just came home from work. And the engagement ring and wedding ring were just sitting on a bedside table. So it looks like maybe she felt bad. And she came back just to give me the ring. Oh. The only thing that this woman has a value on her body, she's going to go back to her abusive husband's house and just sneakily put it back in there for him. Mm -hmm. rather than sell it for money that she so desperately needs to continue her life on the run. Is Peter literally wanting to like just bang his head against the wall? Yeah, he hates this guy. He knows he's lying. And the last thing he asks him is that we heard from your neighbor that you like to bury things in your yard. Random ass hobby. He said, why? First of all, why do you like to do that? And he goes like, I don't know. I don't like just like going to the dump. You don't like going to the dump, so you'd rather spend hours of hard labor digging gigantic holes in your yard to put waste in. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants waste in their backyard, in the ground. Well, especially because it can't look very attractive if there's holes everywhere. Well, it doesn't really matter because he's going to light his place on fire anyway. (laughs) Homeowner of the year over here. (laughs) Should get him a medal. Yeah. So I don't think there was a homeowners association, no HOA going on in this neighborhood in in this time in 1989. So yeah, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do that all the time. And they said, okay, can you give us an inventory of everything that you've buried? Amazing. And he mentions all the things that the neighbor mentioned except for the 44-gallon drum. He doesn't want anyone to know about that one. Nope. So he's like, all of the red flags are flying. The alarm bells are going off. And so the number one thing he does is find this Carl guy just to double check that she didn't actually run off with him. So through interviews with Christine and eventually Carl himself, he does get a picture of what this relationship entailed and how it started. So apparently because Jean was so terribly depressed – 
she had told him that she was going to go on a job interview. So she dropped her child off with her mother and she went into Sydney just to get some alone time and clear her head. And so she was apparently sitting on like a bench or something near the opera house, just watching the ferries go back and forth over the harbor. And this guy, Carl Needing, did walk by and he noticed that this very attractive, very sad woman looked just depressed. And so he actually stopped and he said, hey, are you okay? And at that point, she just kind of started spilling her guts and being like, no, I'm not. I'm in this terrible relationship and I don't know what I'm going to do and I don't know how I'm going to get out and I've been with him since I was a teenager. And they started talking. And then that conversation kind of like slid into a lot of things that they had in common. And then all of a sudden, the conversation was fun and different. It wasn't just sad. It was like pleasant. And they ended up having this romantic afternoon. He took her to the botanical gardens and they ended up going out and getting tea together. And one thing led to another and they did end up in his apartment in Bondi having sex. Wow. What a day. What a day indeed. Now, when this happened, she felt guilty, excited, hopeful, all of these feelings. And she went straight to her mother's house because obviously she also had to pick up her child. And she told her mother right away that it had happened. And she goes, okay, do you think that I should tell Tom? Should I admit what happened? No. And her mother was like, absolutely not. You cannot, you cannot tell your husband what happened because he will hurt you. And it doesn't even matter. You don't need to tell him. Just don't do it. But apparently that evening, oh no, she did tell him. So he lost his mind. He started beating her. He started demanding to know where this guy lived. So she told him the guy's name. She said he lived in Bondi. She didn't know the exact address. Good. So he knows that there's a guy with this name in Bondi that he wants to kill oh at this God. point. And so he started trying to – he was going to Bondi and like stalking around the general area where he believed the guy had a flat. and. At this point, Christine, Jean's mother, calls him and is like, look, Jean came over to my house last night and she told me she was going to make up this lie to make you jealous. There's oh. no guy in Bondi. The whole Mom. thing she made up, like, let's not ruin everything. You guys have a kid together. She just obviously just wanted some attention. And Jean went along with it for a little while to save herself and to save Carl. But she was really, really, really into Carl. And so in the two weeks following that one trip and that one experience, she started calling him a bunch, even though it was so dangerous. And I think because she was so abused, this attention was so warm. And just somebody who was treated her with kindness felt like love. She also didn't know anything else. She just only knew her abusive husband. And so she is like already telling him, I think I love you after one experience together. I think I want to leave my marriage. Can I move in with you? And he was kind of like, I thought that was a one night stand. I mean, I want to help you out, but I don't really want to get into a complicated situation. And I didn't really want to start dating a married woman. So kind of no, but he did see her one more time after this. So this was just a rough situation altogether because she's also telling him how terrible her husband is. So he's got to be a little afraid of that. And 
when she did get home from, I think that second, or there might've been a third visit of seeing him at that point, she was caught and Tom did demand to know where he lived at that point. He called Christine and told Christine that he was going to break the guy's neck. So Christine was terrified. Jean was terrified. Carl told Peter that he did come home one day and Tom Keir was on his doorstep. Oh my God. That's terrifying. Terrifying. But almost the more terrifying thing is that he was completely calm. He was completely calm. He wasn't full of rage. He was like, hey, hey, mate, you know, I heard that my wife has been here and you've been hanging around with her. Yeah, because he's crazy. He's like unhinged. He's like, I just, you know, we're having some marital problems. Do you mind if I like come in for a second? Carl invited Tom in to have a cup of tea. And he's like, yeah, we've just been having a really hard time. You know, she's really young and she does this all the time. Like basically gaslighting Carl, gaslighting Jean. And he's like, oh, sorry, mate. Like, I didn't even realize what was going on. I don't want to be involved in this. Like, it seems like you really love her. I'm really glad that you guys are, like, going to work things out. And he's like, yeah, can you just do me a favor? Like, let's give her a call right now. I want her to hear it from you that you're not going to see her anymore. And so he called Jean from Carl's house. You know, she answers the phone and he's like, hey, guess where I am? She's like, where? And he's like, I'm at your lover Carl's house. And she's like, oh, my God, is he okay? What have you done? And he's like, yeah, he's fine here. He just wants to talk to you. Passes the phone to Carl. This is so psychologically twisted. Twisted. And he's like, hey, I can't see you anymore. Like, you know, Tom's been here telling me about how she loves you. And I really think you guys got to give it another shot. So I'm not going to see you anymore. But like, I wish you guys the best of luck. Gets off the phone. Like, he is stripping her of anything, any joy, any hope, any chance or belief that she can get out of this relationship with anything. It is. So sick. And this is also the why, like, you know, you're like, why was that guy? Why did he just deliver her back to her husband? Because he had also been bamboozled by her husband to think that she was just like a naive young woman who didn't really know what she wanted out of her relationship and was like running away to get attention. So he was like, ah, come on, Jean. Like, let's go home. Like, we're not going to do this anymore. I got to drop you off at your house. I'm not getting involved. When she was probably terrified for her life. If you have a pet, they're a part of your family. Nothing compares to coming home to a sweet little wiggle butt or waking up to soft purrs. It's not just all cuddles, though. Being a pet parent is a huge responsibility. Since our pets can't talk, we do our best to understand what's going on, but knowing something's up with them or their health and not understanding why is one of the greatest challenges of pet parenthood. Enter Fuzzy. Fuzzy is a telehealth service for pet parents that offers 24-7 access to personalized pet care from veterinary professionals. You know that anytime I think something is wrong with my cat, Quincy, I start frantically Googling and calling you immediately? Absolutely every time. But actually, the last time that happened, you went to Fuzzy and it had all the answers for you. It's true. But from everyday questions to middle-of-the-night emergencies, Fuzzy has the answers that pet parents need. Through live chat and virtual vet consultations available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Fuzzy can answer your pet questions big and small, urgent, and every day. Fuzzy can also recommend the exact right products for your pet, all of which are handpicked by their established team of veterinary professionals and available at discounts exclusive to Fuzzy members. From getting your pet's diet just right to meeting their middle-of-the-night needs to finally figuring out what makes their breath smell that way, 
Nothing is too big or too small for a quick fuzzy call. Right now, Fuzzy is offering our listeners a free seven-day trial membership. Go to yourfuzzy.com slash lovemurder today to sign up. That's a free seven-day trial and access to exclusive member discounts on pet meds, supplements, food, and more at y-o-u-r-f-u-z-z-y.com slash lovemurder. Again, yourfuzzy.com slash lovemurder for your free trial of Fuzzy with access to 24-7 personalized pet care and vet-recommended products. Andy, is there anything more delightful than getting a nice compliment on what you're wearing? Nope. And that happens all of the time when I'm wearing Rothy's. Rothy's are so versatile. They're the perfect shoes for community and for traveling. Everyone notices them. Yep. And while they're known for their chic, pointed-toe flats, they actually have a ton of iconic head-turning designs in a variety of bright but sophisticated colors. I've worked in fashion for 15 years, so I have a pretty high bar for design. And the fact that Rothy's makes shoes this stylish and comfortable is pretty remarkable. Oh my gosh, absolutely. You do have a very high bar. (laughs) And I personally love how versatile they are. They work great with yoga pants, but can also be dressed up for a night out, which I definitely need as a mom. And I also love that they're so washable. You and I are both busy, 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 active moms. And these washable shoes are just about the only thing that can keep up with everything I do, including stepping in God knows what. Uh, Absolutely. Between running around LA, home, the showroom, the office, nanny care, and traveling all over the country for work, having great shoes like Rothy's makes such a difference. They also take sustainability to the next level, which you know is super important for me. All of their products are knit with thread made from plastic water bottles. They've repurposed around 125 million water bottles so far. I love that. Your new favorite shoes are waiting. Discover the versatile styles that you can wear absolutely anywhere and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash lovemurder. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash lovemurder for $20 off your first order. To review, at this point, Peter knows that this is a very scary individual. Number one, Carl never, ever, ever, ever again saw or heard from Jean ever again after that night, which doesn't seem very likely if she was already in love with him. The whole thing, number two, that he said that she had been pregnant with another man, well, he didn't know that she was secretly taking birth control pills. So there was no way or very little chance that she could have gotten pregnant anyway because her friends and mother knew she was secretly taking birth control pills. Yeah. So that's a lie. The whole ring thing, like we talked about, number three, there's no way that would happen. She would need it for money. And at that point, Peter also contacted Australia's social services and, you know, whatever their DMV equivalent is. And she has never applied for any social services. She's never applied for any benefits. She has never renewed her driver's license. She has never applied for health insurance. There's just no record of her. She has disappeared into the ether. So clearly this is all a pile of bullshit. So he goes back to Jean's friends to get more information and they find out a whole bunch of more deplorable stuff, like all of the rapes, that she was constantly covered in bruises, that she had become skin and bones from the stress, and that shortly before she disappeared, she had told both her mother and her best friend that Tom had at one point punched her so hard recently that she had lost consciousness and wet herself. Oh, that's so fucked up. It is so fucked up. So 
At this point, Peter is 100% sure that obviously he killed her. He killed her that night. And he believes that he had put her body in a drum and buried it somewhere on the property. Christine informed him, because going back to how this all worked out about Rosalie, is that after Tom and Rosalie met at this wedding, they did very, very quickly hit it off. Now, Rosalie is 21 or 22. She had never had a boyfriend before. She had focused on her studies her whole life. So she also was in a similar position where she had never had a serious relationship before, and he came on very strong with the love bombing. And if she's being sent to Australia from the Philippines, she probably is like looking for some sort of network or community. 100%. And who would you trust? Someone that your family introduced you to. So the relationship moved very quickly. She ended up staying with whatever family member she was, but they courted. And then when it was time that her visa was up and she had to go back to the Philippines, he actually went with her and stayed there for a little while to spend some time getting to know her family and courting her officially. And by the time he left that trip, they were engaged. So he went back home to Australia, got some things settled, and he ended up going back to the Philippines where they got married in the Philippines. And while he was away, he had rented his house out to a woman named Denise Wilkes and her son. Okay. So eventually they moved back to Australia together. They move in with Tom's family because he has a tenant now in the house. And Christine said that he asked her to come and help clean up the house from the tenant so that they could move back into the house together. Okay. Christine said that she was shocked by the state of the home, but because the tenant had been living there, there was a mistaken assumption that it was because of the tenant. It was full of mice. It had a disgusting, disgusting stench. She could not even put words to it. She thought like maybe the tenant's like leaving raw meat out or something. It was revolting. She even said while they were trying to clean this place up that one of Tom's dogs at one point got this gigantic bone. And she said later she does not know if that was potentially part of her daughter. Oh. But at the time, she just thought, wow, where did you get that? And she started joking with Tom being like, what are you feeding your dogs? Oh, my God. Poor mom. This poor woman. So they got the name of the tenant that she could remember, Christine could remember. They track her down and the tenant's like, oh, yeah, we can talk about that. I moved into that home February of 1990 and there was a rotten meat or dead animal smell that came from underneath my son's room that no matter what we did, we just thought like, you know, something had crawled in under the house and died. We could not get that smell out no matter what we did. And she had talked about in the bedroom how she had had to clean brown stains off the wall. And the way she described the brown stains sounded like blood spatter. Um, this is really hard to listen to, but she also described her dog coming up, like he would burrow underneath the home, and then he would come up with random clumps of hair and bones that she didn't give him. If I was living somewhere and that was happening, I would definitely call the police. I mean, I agree with you completely. I was—I literally wrote down, have these people never heard any true crime in their life? I can't look at a garbage bag on the side of the road without thinking there's a body in it. Yeah. But I also, I just think it was a different place. I mean, you've spent a lot of, like, it was like a low 
and I don't mean to bring this up again, but it was like a low socioeconomic neighborhood at the time. I don't know how this neighborhood is now. And in those neighborhoods, people are usually like, they like to mind their own business. They're loath to call the police. Yeah. You know, you don't want to bring unwarranted attention if it's just something that's happening. And did they just abandon the home and the home was like abandoned for a while or did they live there through the end of their lease? Oh, so eventually they got word that he wanted to move back in. Okay. So that's why she moved out. Okay. So she was tolerating it that whole time. She was tolerating it the whole time. Because I don't think that the smell was as bad when she moved in. It got progressively worse and they couldn't figure out why. And then, of course, Christine, Jean's mother, came and she remarked on it too. But the next time that she came to the house to see Rosalie, she said it didn't smell that bad anymore. So something had occurred at some point. So Peter obviously needs a warrant. He needs to dig up this yard and start looking for Gene immediately. And luckily, Unibrow Tom ran his mouth while he was awaiting his bail hearing in prison. He told his cellmate that he was accused of killing his second missus and that he had already killed his first missus. What? Not so smart, dude. No. So this is according to Peter Seymour's book, Seven Bones. This is what the guy said he told him. He asked him what he was in for. And he said, they charged me with murdering my second missus. Your second missus? What happened to the first one? He said, well, what I'm going to say is never to be repeated. You understand? And the guy nodded. And he said, I got rid of me, missus. That's an Irish accent. Well, I cannot do this accent. I wish you could do it because it's written like... An Australian speaks, only I cannot do the accent, so it's making this very difficult. Well, I mean, Aussies are technically like English and Irish, so. (laughs) Yeah. And so he says, I got rid of me, missus. And the guy says, sure, mate. Every bloke has gotten rid of a missus at some stage in their lives. And he said, no, mate, you don't get it. She's gone. I got rid of her. She's dead. I bashed her. Then I choked her. Then I buried her standing up under the back corner of my house. Wow. Okay, John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Yeah, the cops are trying to pin that one on me too, but they won't be able to, is what he said. His cellmate told his friend who was there, he was in for some sort of sexual assault and his bail hearing was coming up. So this friend, this guy, Brian Riley, heard it and he's like, oh, fuck, if I can get him to tell me too, then maybe I have some information I can trade to get bail. So he went up and he is like, so I heard you killed your missus and maybe your other missus. And the guy's like, no, fuck off. He didn't want to talk to him. But then he like warmed him up. They got talking. And then finally the guy's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, I fucking killed her. He said that it occurred after he found out that she was cheating on him. He said, I had a blue with her and I strangled her and I buried her under the house. Why do you think they're not going to be able to peg you if you buried her under the house? Well, you'll see. At this point, Peter has more than enough to get a warrant to dig up Tom Keir's yard, but the initial dig turned up nothing. Okay. Did they go under the house? They did as much as they could given the warrant because they're not allowed to destroy the house in this dig. So they did as best they could. They find no drum. And now there's really no drum there. The drum has gone because even though the neighbor said he saw him putting it into the ground... They're using metal detectors, et cetera, and there's no 44-gallon drum anywhere on this property. So he believes that the reason why Tom is so cocky 
And the reason why the smell seemed to dissipate when Rosalie moved in is that when he returned back to his house and realized how bad the smell had gotten, his new wife was already just at his parents' house. And he was like, okay, before she moves in, I have to get rid of this evidence. So they believe he re-dug up the body and the drum and moved it somewhere. So that's why he was so confident that they weren't going to be able to pin Gene's murder on him. Got it. Okay. But at the same time, Peter's a smart guy. And he's thinking, if it is true that dogs were getting into hair and bones, then some scavenger must have gotten that drum open at some point. And what is the possibility of him being able to get every scrap of her Not if someone got it open. Not if a dog or a crow or whatever got it open. Yeah. So what are the chances that he found every piece of bone if these animals had attacked her body? So he's like, we got to keep looking. He ends up having to do two more searches. He brought in structural engineers so they could get as underneath the house as possible without breaking the structure. They did everything. He brought in scientists. And Andy, he found seven bones. What? Well, obviously the name of the book, but exactly. I figured, but they were but still so shocked. tiny. I mean, he really did almost get away with it. These bones were very, very little. The seven bones were a small right thumb bone, like more of a joint than even a bone. Oh, my gosh. A phalanx of the right big toe, the left patella, that's your kneecap, which is, that was the biggest one they got. Okay. A phalanx of a right side finger, a left third metacarpal, as well as another small little bit of a right hand finger bone. Oh my gosh. So all tiny. Tiny, tiny little bits. So all of these, even though there wasn't a lot of the bones. They were able to prove forensically that they belonged to an adult woman, a young adult woman, who based on the size of the fingers, the toes, et cetera, was about Jean's height and based on the aging process, had been in the ground for as long as Jean had been missing. So this is all good news. Because all of these things obviously point to it being Gene. And he's going around jail bragging about killing his missus. And they also have that. So they have two witness testimonies, which it is always a gamble, though, when you have prisoners who are in on drug charges or rape charges. These guys are not the salt of the earth, trustworthy next door neighbor. So it's a little iffy. They need more information here. And at this point, Peter's feeling pretty good about everything. He thinks they're going to lock down this trial that's upcoming at this point. They're going to get him convicted for Rosalie's death because it seems pretty obvious who it was. If no one saw anyone going in or out of the house and 10 minutes after he left, the fire started. Yeah. Or the fire was apparent 10 minutes after he left, rather. So he's like, they're going to nail him for Rosalie's death and he's going to be in prison. And then I'm going to have proof. I'm going to get DNA proof that this is Gene's body. Gene's bones and I'm going to get him too. And so he's feeling pretty good at this point. And at that point, his wife went into labor with her second daughter. So this is a high point. He's feeling good about everything. Peter's feeling great. His daughter, Jenna, was born at this time and he went on paternity leave for a little bit. But then when he came back, he had bad news. Lots of bad news. 
So in order to get a DNA match in the early 90s, the forensic scientists needed to have DNA from both biological parents, which the detectives thought was no big deal because they had Clifford and Christine. When they asked them for samples, they revealed that Clifford was not, in fact, Gene's biological father. Oh, no. Do they know where he is? The couple did not. Okay. So they knew his name, naturally. And they explained that it had been a previous boyfriend and he had left Christine. And Christine had been pregnant with this man's baby when she met Clifford and they fell in love and got married. So cute. I always think that's so, I mean, obviously it's so tumultuous for the mom to be because you have no idea. But when like a guy really falls in love with a woman, regardless of the fact that she's like pregnant and carrying someone else's kid and they just like fall in love anyway, that's just so true, you know? It's heart melting and it also is definitely seeing the hardest part of a relationship right yeah, away. First. Because yeah. having, like, imagine getting to know somebody and dating them and at the same time, and they got married pretty quickly too before the baby was born. Oh before my was God. Born. And then having to deal with having a newborn on top of like all of that, it's a lot. If you can go through that successfully, then you've got a solid marriage. And they did clearly because they are still married to this day. Oh, I love that. I know. They're wonderful people, by the way. So it was very difficult at this point, but they did manage to track down the bio dad and he consented to giving them a sample. Good. Good. Okay. So it's bad news, but then it's good news. It's just taking a lot of time here. That's just a road bump. It's just a road bump. Then we got another road bump. The Australian scientist who was working with the DNA it was very difficult. So basically, these bones are so small and you have to be careful not to damage everything. And he was able to prove in one test that it was the offspring of the two biological parents. Therefore, you know, the only likelihood. Also, this is the only child they had together. So it seemed very likely that it was Gene, but he could not replicate those results in tests after that which is not going to hold up in court. Oh, my God. So at that point, the Australian scientist says, look, like our DNA technology is not that great yet. You have to go to the Brits or even better, the Americans. At this point, the Americans were on the forefront of DNA technology. But that is going to cost a lot of money and it's going to require a lot of approvals from higher ups. So they might think we're going to nail this guy for Rosalie he's going to go to jail. So who cares? You know, rather than spend all this time and money and energy on trying to get scientists from the United States who might also not be able to get the right test results for you. So at that point, he's hit this wall and he's pretty frustrated. And then kind of the worst news happens, which is, it's not the worst news, but this one was, it was definitely like a gut punch to him. They said that it seemed likely, obviously, that she was dead. So they were going to move the case to homicide and take Peter off of it. After he's worked this hard, they're just going to- I don't get gonna... how that can just happen. Yeah. So he's like, are you kidding me? And they're like, yeah, mate, we want you to teach this training course in this other department now. So he said, you know what? I think this is a sign. I'm going to take this as a sign that I need to change up what I'm doing with my life right now. So Peter refused to give up on Gene, and he refused to lose his relationship with Christine. This was something they were in, in contact, so this was very important to him that she have somebody that she trusts 
through this process because now she wanted desperately to find her daughter and find out what happened to her. And he also wanted to set Jean's soul at rest. He had not been a spiritual type of person who believed in ghosts before this, but there's numerous places in the narrative where he discusses these crazy feelings of just knowing she's there with him. And he felt like he had to, I mean, he still wants to, at this point, also find the rest of her body. And he wants to imprison the man who killed her. And he thinks that maybe she'll be set free somehow. So he, this is like more than just a job. This is like a quest at this point, a spiritual quest. It's relationships. It's everything. It's taking over his life at this point. And he realizes that there was something he kind of had already wanted to do at this point anyhow, which was he wanted to become a police prosecutor. And in Australia and some other countries, there are such things called police prosecutors who are exclusively sworn officers who are trained to act as advocates in criminal prosecutions. So they're people who straddle the line between prosecutor and police officer so that they can make sure that all of the evidence is done legally and prepared correctly, but from a detective's perspective, it sounded like. Cool. So he had kind of already wanted to do this, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go do this because then if her case eventually goes to trial, he can work on it. So he's still involved in what's going on. So while Peter was training for this new role, another very important trial was just about to begin. The trial for Rosalina's murder began in early 1993. And at this point, Peter was given special permission from the prosecutor's office to join his former partner, Mick, for the duration of the trial and help this joint homicide prosecutorial team. Well, the fate of Jean's case still hung in the balance because nobody had sent the bones to the United States at this point. The team really did believe that Rosalie's case was going to be a slam dunk conviction. The trial started, they started thinking it was going to be days and it ran into weeks. And the whole time, Christine and Clifford were there watching this whole thing unfold with Peter and having to stare at the face of the man that they believed had killed their daughter and had then killed their family member. Yeah. So the prosecution's case hinged on the fact that multiple witnesses had seen Tom Keir and only Tom Keir arriving at entering, and then a little bit later, leaving. And then shortly after that, 10-ish minutes, maybe, the smoke was apparent coming from the home. Okay. No one had seen anybody else. So it's like, what are the odds that they saw him enter and exit and this guy, this witness was on his porch the whole time and somehow missed another random assailant who, by the way, Tom couldn't even imagine who would like to kill his wife, Rosalie. So there was not even another potential person they could point to. The defense's theory is that some random person off the street happened to get into their house, strangle her to death with no reason that would be sexually motivated because semen wasn't found in her body and then know where he kept his gas cans and light her body on fire and leave before that 10-minute window when the neighbors started working on the house trying to get the fire to go out. Hopefully they did not get paid because that's a pretty shitty defense. Yeah. <laughs> so Rosalie's mother, Esther, and her sister, Ella, made the trip from the Philippines to testify about what Rosalie had said about this relationship. And it was, of course, but still very sadly, 
almost identical to the things that Jean had experienced. It had been very lovely until the point where he got married to her. And then he started doing the same shit. She was not allowed to wear bathing suits anymore. She had to go swimming in a t-shirt and long shorts. She was not allowed to go to family gatherings for the most part, unless he was with her. She was never allowed to go anywhere on her own. And it just got worse and worse. He was controlling every part of her life. And now she was a very bright girl. And another big thing about this is that there was a lot of racism at that time. And they were painting Rosalie like she was like this poor, uneducated girl from the Philippines who was just coming to Australia to nab a white guy so she could be taken care of. This could not be farther from the truth. She had a degree from a university. She brought her own money into this relationship. She came from a very solidly middle-class, happy family in the Philippines. All three of her siblings were college-educated. Yeah, no. He's not educated. He has no money. She's bringing money into this marriage. It's so gross that they went that angle. It's disgusting. And her family is trying to say, no, 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 no. That's not how this happened. In fact, she gave him the money to start his own upholstery business, which is what he wanted to do. He had been working for a company and he wanted to go out on his own. And she said, well, let's do it. I can run the books. I can run all of our business stuff. You do the work. And for a little while, it was okay. It was also another way to control her because she had no job outside of working with him. But he, even though she was the accountant, he still demanded to control the money. And after about 16 months of marriage or so, she was calling her mother and saying, I'm coming back. I'm out of here because I am working my ass off and he is controlling. He's abusive. He's terrible. And even not worse, but even more than that, all the money that I put into this and all the money I've been working for, he stole and he lost. He gambled it away. He gambled $10,000 away at the dog track. Wow. If you're going to do that, at least bet on the ponies. Like, it's one thing to say, I lost our money betting on Seabiscuit. It's another to say, I lost all our money betting on Santa's little helper. <laughs> Are you kidding me? They're both bad. They're both bad. I mean, it's all bad. He gambled away all of her money. And she was just saving to get a car so she could drive away from this man. And that's what she told her mother and her sisters. So they assumed that she was going to be coming home soon and that she was getting herself out of the situation. Again, another very accomplished, smart, wonderful woman. There's a, I hope it's different these days, but especially I think back in the day, there was like this vision of an idea of what a, an abused woman in a domestic violence situation is like. Like she's some cowardly woman who can't fight for herself. These are very strong women. Anyone can find themselves in this situation. Yep. And she was ready to leave. And just like Jean, at that moment when she was going to go, she was going to actually get out of there. She was going to leave. That is when he killed her. They know. They can smell it. So, yeah. That's basically the case that the prosecution painted. And they really were. We're like, this defies reason to think that it was anybody else, especially given the testimony that she wasn't allowed to make new friends. She wasn't even allowed at the end to see her family members alone. So you're really going to say it's just some random person off the street because there's no other suspect here. Now, you know how in the, in the U.S. actually, like in order for them to 
murderers or suspects or whatever, the charged party, has to get cross-examined if they would like to testify on their own behalf. Yeah. Obviously, nobody wants to do that. So in Australia, and I'm sure in other places too, but specifically in this case, he was able to make a doc statement, which is basically they say he can say something in his own defense and he's allowed to do that and not get cross-examined. But basically the justice or judge tells the jury that it matters less than real testimony because it is not coming to you from the filter of a cross-examination and a real study of whether this is not true. So he's allowed to say something, but you can't really trust it essentially. Yeah. The probative value of what they refer to is formal evidence tested and filtered through cross-examination. And that's not this. But when he got up to say something for his doc statement, the entire courthouse became deadly silent. Like you could hear a pin drop. But just as he opened his mouth to speak, a huge thunderclap resounded through the courtroom. Lightning flashed and Peter said that the windows shook so hard it seemed like they would shatter. Oh my God, stop. It was some real wrath of God shit right here. It was like serious. And then he said that for like six full minutes, every time he went to talk, another rumble would come through. And to the point where his lawyer was like, just shut up, just shut up and wait. Just stop talking until it passes. Because it just looked so bad. It looked so bad. And so it finally passed and he just said a bunch of shit about how much he loved Rosalie, how he was so, it was the worst day of his life, that he had gone through so much and he had really found the love of his life and they were so happy. And basically that he was being victimized too, that he can't believe they came after him when he's the victim, that he lost his wife. And it was just a bunch of fucking shit. Oh my God. Yeah. In closing statements, the prosecution said, this is just common sense. This man was abusive. They couldn't say anything about Gene. They weren't allowed to. But it's the only thing that makes sense. And the defense said, well, reasonable doubt. Here's a thing called reasonable doubt. Can you say beyond a reasonable doubt that this man definitely killed his wife? You don't think that there's a possibility that there's a possibility that, you know, the neighbors didn't get up to go to the bathroom, didn't get up to get a glass of tea, that instead they were watching this house like a hawk the whole time. There's no chance someone killed her. No possibility in the world. You can say for sure. So that's how they closed. They just, they really hammered the reasonable doubt. But even at the end of all of this, Peter felt like, and so did the prosecutor, the crown prosecutor, and so did the rest of the team that, 100% they were going to get a conviction, no problem. However, after a few hours of deliberation, they heard that the jury had asked the judge for a better explanation of what reasonable doubt is. And that point, they were a little alarmed. And the next day, the jury returned and they delivered the verdict and it was not guilty. What? He was acquitted of the murder <gasps> of his second wife, Rosalina. Oh my God, that's horrifying. Peter was numb and he had no idea what to do as he watches this guy who he knows is a double murderer walk out of the courthouse totally free. Oh my God, Christine and Clifford must have been so fucking terrified. Beside their self, beside their self. And he has to try to hold it together for the families. He wrote in his book, 
Mick and I made the uncomfortable walk outside the court and tried to explain what had just happened to the families. How could we explain it when we couldn't work it out for ourselves? No, you How can't. do you tell a family fully expecting justice to be done that this is the biggest travesty of our legal system you've ever seen? How do you tell a family that they cannot have their peace? They were totally pissed off and I wasn't far behind. In among the hubbub, I managed to call the coroner's office, who is like a little different than um, like our medical examiner. It's like kind of the boss. Yep. It's Peter Seymour here. Can you pass a message on to the coroner? Tell him the jury just left their bloody brains at home. <sighs> and so at that point, he hugs Christine and she's crying. She's in shock. She says, well, what happens now? Because a conviction would have definitely helped Jeannie's case. Yes. And he says, don't worry about it. The reason Jeannie's case is taking so long is because we want to make sure we have everything watertight so the same thing doesn't happen again. But inside, he wrote, I was saying, how could I promise that? Rosalina's murder was as cut and dried as they came, and yet the bastard walked. Yeah, but you still have to, to the family, you still have to try to be as optimistic as possible. Absolutely. So the jury would later say that it came down to those 10 minutes. They just could not get over the fact that it was possible that somebody else had murdered her in that time period. So this was obviously infuriating and made all the worse by Tom Keir going all over the media, talking shit on the police, the prosecution, even like their families being like, they made this crusade against me. But one of these interviews will eventually come back and bite him in the ass because one of the TV news anchors actually hired a body language expert and professor of human behavior to analyze it, analyze the whole interview. And he's like, he's lying here. He's lying here. You'll notice that he didn't say he didn't kill her here. And they would later be able to submit that into evidence. So yeah, I love it when these guys karma fairy themselves a little bit. Oh, yeah. So he also welcomed his third and last daughter during this time. And he said it was just so bittersweet because while one, two families were grieving, his family was completing their family and experiencing joy. But it was so tinged with sadness because he wanted some portion of that chapter to be done when he welcomed his third and final daughter. Yeah. The daughter came in April of 1993 and her name was Taylor. And so the audible narrator is naturally Australian. And so I thought her name was Taylor because he's like, Taylor. Taylor. In 1994, Peter officially became a police prosecutor and got a new female boss who was a total badass named Jan Stevenson. The two formed a bond made of mutual respect. And soon after joining the department, Peter asked for help getting Jean's bones sent to the United States for DNA testing. Jan put her ass on the line for Peter and she made it happen. And so she was kind of new to the position and one of the first women ever to hold this office so she was pretty much like, I'm trusting you, Pete. Don't make me look stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a big deal. <laughs> and he didn't because when the results came back, they were a match to Gene's DNA profile. Thank God. Because that makes the case so much better, right? Yes, absolutely. The bones were undeniably Gene's. And everyone was pretty sure that she wasn't walking around out there somewhere without a patella. No. Or a thumb. Or a finger. Yeah, or certain metacarpals, yes. Tom Keir was finally charged with Gene's murder. And then after an excruciatingly long wait, he finally stood trial on August 10th, 1999. Jeez. 1999, 11 years since Gene went missing. Ugh, that makes me sick. 
Peter's anxiety was through the roof. He believed that this was going to be, even though they had the DNA evidence, so much time had passed and he had believed Rosalie's was a slam dunk. So he had no idea what to think. He was just trying to be optimistic and trying to be encouraging for her family. But he had a lot of doubts at oh this point. Oh my God, point. of course. It's so scary. Yeah. He writes about like this crazy moment that the jury was allowed to pass around these seven tiny bones in plastic bags and look at them. And it's like, that's it. That's all he had. This huge life, this promising life. The bigness of who he should have been and who she should have become she was, so young. was reduced to these tiny bones that these jurors are passing around and just the travesty of that, the travesty of it. And the prosecutor, the crown prosecutor, who's the one who does the arguing, really did a good job of bringing her friends and Christine and, and her sisters on the stand to talk about who she had been to make her alive to this jury that was holding all that was left of her in their hands. And they talked about everything that I talked about, her big spirit and how talented she was at basketball and who she was before this man got his hooks in her, groomed her, and then her life devolved into a horror show of domestic abuse and coercive control. It was clear that those who love Jean, like you were saying, like, why did no one stop this? And it was clear that all of these people felt terrible. Like this was the biggest mistake of all of their lives that they hadn't stopped this. And Jean's sister and her boyfriend at the time who had witnessed that scene that I described for you when she's kicking and screaming and he's just throwing her in the car and driving away with her. So they testified to that. And this guy, this boyfriend, his name was also Peter. His name was Peter Bullock. He said that she was screaming for him to help. Like she was screaming his name and saying, come help me. And he said, you are married. I'm not getting involved. And while he was saying that, this guy is huge. Our Peter, Detective Peter, said that he is like big, burly, bikey, biker guy who looks like ZZ Top with a huge beard, tattoos, the whole thing. He's tough looking. And he started crying like he's testifying with tears running down his face, dripping down his beard. And he said that this was the biggest mistake he had ever made in his entire life. He said, if I'd stopped him when Jean was screaming at me for help, she'd be alive today. But I didn't. And now she's dead. Oh, my God. I mean, also, Carl has to have some remorse, too. Yeah, I don't know. It just sounded like Carl was kind of, she had a bad picker because Carl was kind of a piece of shit too. He did testify, which is good. He testified and he said, I've never seen her again. But he was just kind of, I, I mean, at least in the book, I didn't read any real remorse, which he should have had. Yes. He was like, look, I was tricked. I thought that it was just a messy marriage. I had no way of knowing that that was going to happen. So sad. It is. I mean, I think her family, her friends, and apparently that sister's boyfriend had the most remorse because they witnessed it firsthand. Carl mostly heard things and then he encountered a very calm and collected, seemingly normal Tom. So this is a mistakes all around, which is why, you know, we all have to be more vigilant about, you know, people in our lives and and keeping our eyes open. And I think people really are more these days. And the more these stories are shared, the more people know what to look out for and they know when a joke isn't a joke. Of course, but yeah, it's still like her family just has to feel so, so many feelings. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, guilt is a huge part of this and grief, you know, and wondering what could have been. 
So yeah, the defense, basically their defense was just poking holes in the prosecution's story, saying, because the um, the two guys from jail testified as well, but they were like, they're druggies, they're rapists, they were just trying to get a deal. And the about the DNA testing, well, the Australian scientist basically found nothing. He ran all these tests. He couldn't do it. So you shipped it off to the United States just to get the answer you want. Like, what do we even know about this science? Kind of like they just poke, 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 poked everywhere that they could. In closing, the Crown Prosecutor painted a horror story of what happened that night when Carl unwittingly delivered Jean back into the hands of her executioner, how he kind of walked the jury through how he had lethally beat and strangled her to death while their three-year-old son lay sleeping in the next room, a child that would never know his mother as a result Uh... of this crime. The jury deliberated for less than two hours before returning on September 17th, 1999, to deliver their verdict, which was guilty. (laughs) Yes. Thank goodness. After so much time, 11 long years. (sighs) So Christine and Clifford, all of Jean's loved ones, definitely fell apart in relief at this point. Thomas Keir would be held in prison until the following February for his sentencing After the verdict, Peter and his team took Christine and Clifford out for some celebratory beers. And while they were all, you know, cheersing and congratulating one another and, you know, talking about Gene, at one point, Christine pulled Peter aside to tell him something. And this is how he recounted it in his book. Christine took hold of my hand. You know, Detective Seymour, she began, years ago after Jeannie disappeared, I went to a friend of mine who was a clairvoyant. I asked her about Jeannie. And she told me something had happened to her, but she wouldn't say what. She told me about a detective who was tall and thin with brown hair. Looks like Peter Seymour. Yeah, I figured. (laughs) She said he'd be the one who would never give up and would make sure the truth came out. She said that this detective would make sure justice was done. And I know now that she was talking about you. So cute. Her eyes pierced me as she spoke, and I shuddered as a cold wave passed through my entire body. I could see the tears in her eyes, so I embraced her, and my ears began to get a little watery as well. I've had a lot of strange feelings, I said to Christine. Now I know that Jean has been here with me throughout the entire investigation, willing us on. But I only did my job, Christine. There were a lot of us involved. It was a real team effort. It doesn't matter who did what, though. Justice was done. Unfortunately, I never got to meet Jean, but I feel like I know her after all these years. I'm just happy knowing that you can get on with remembering Jean the way she was instead of not knowing what happened to her. Yep. Uh, So yeah, Jean's bones were finally laid to rest on September 25th, 1999. One of the jurors sent a huge floral arrangement to the memorial. That's really sweet. He wrote, I don't know if it was a he or she, wrote a long note to her saying, that they were so in awe. The jury had discussed at length her poise and her strength and her resilience and that they were so impressed with Christine as a human being for all she had fought for her daughter. And they wanted her to know that. On February 29th, so that means it was a leap Leap year. year. Yep, 2000, Thomas Keir was sentenced to 24 years behind bars and would not be eligible for parole until he served a minimum of 18. Okay. A forensic psychiatrist evaluated Tom directly after his conviction and gave evidence at the sentencing that Keir would likely not be a danger to any of the general population and society, but he would always 
100% be a danger to any woman he was ever in an intimate relationship yeah, with. Yeah. So that's still society because he can meet That's still anyone. society. We're part of it. Come on. Exactly. So Justice Adams said something very poignant during the sentencing, which applies to so many of our cases that I had to read it. Plus, I think we all love a good, like, judge slapback. It has sometimes been suggested that domestic murders comprise a less heinous class of crime than murders where such a relationship is absent. I do not accept this point of view. The deliberate infliction of lethal violence is as culpable whether the victim is a spouse or a stranger. I add that it is apparent that there are some men in the community who consider that marriage gives them the right to control the lives and the welfare of their wives and to punish them when they do not comply with those demands. Those men should be warned that the law will not stand idly by and permit them to commit crimes of violence, however justified they think they might be. Nor should they think that such attempts at justification will be met with sympathy. To the contrary, the assertion of such a right should be treated as regarding culpability all the greater. Good. Slap, slap, slap. I mean, I can't believe that in the 2000s, or I mean, this is year 2000, I'm pretty sure, that you still have to say, guys, you can't beat your wives. I know. I can't believe that this is news to you, that you cannot beat your wives when she gets frustrated and and angry because you're controlling every part of her life. I know. It's disgusting. It's unbelievable. So unfortunately, this episode is not over. In 2002, Thomas Keir successfully appealed his conviction on the basis of- What? What? of how the judge had worded his instructions to the jury regarding the DNA evidence. (gasps) When summing up how they were to consider the DNA evidence, he had said, there is only a one in 660,000th chance that the bones are not genes. When he should have said, apparently, if you take a randomly chosen member of the community there is a one in 660,000 chance that it will match the bones. Come on. Because of that, he got a second trial. The second trial was similar to the first in almost every capacity. <sighs> Only Peter described Tom's new lawyer as even more of a knob than the first guy. <laughs> and they apparently really got into it on the stand when Peter was testifying and he was trying to like, you know, trick him up and make him say something. And Peter was like not having it. He's like, I, I had like legal experience at this point too. I'm working as a police prosecutor. You're not going to like F with me. Like come off. And he like actually got some good like one liners in and the jury was like. <laughs> also, here's the thing is that like they're not retrialing because of some incorrect evidence or like possibly that Thomas is not guilty or that he maybe didn't kill her. They're retrialing because of the way that a judge phrased the same sentence in the incorrect way. That has nothing to do with his actual crime. Nothing to do with it. So of course, this time the judge was very precise in their instructions. Was it the the same one? No, it was a different Okay, time. okay. And thankfully, Tom Keir was once again... Thank God. ...convicted of Gene's murder. Yay! I cannot believe that he also isn't of Rosalie's. It's insane. Well, don't get too excited because his attorney successfully appealed again for a new trial. Why? Because it came to light that some of the jurors had gone online... 
before the end of the second trial, and they had discovered that he had also murdered Rosalie and been tried but acquitted. They weren't supposed to know that. That wasn't being allowed into evidence. But at and this point, everyone has started to have the internet and news. People read the news. But it was early 2002. Not everyone had the internet. Not everybody was Googling everything at this point. Whatever. So they said because of that, you get a third trial. No. <laughs> well, you and Peter and poor Christine and no. Clifford are all feeling this way. This is why I said it was nearly 15 years to justice. So this third trial was called a judge alone, which is what we call a bench trial. It's just there's no jury, just the judge. I think that the Australians calling it a judge alone makes a lot more sense. Judge alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thankfully, in 2004, Justice Campbell found Thomas Keir guilty of Gene's murder. And even though they did try to appeal again on Jesus, I don't even know what grounds. Are you kidding? At this time, they threw that appeal out. They said, oh, no, I think he's the most your frustrating criminal I've, we've dealt with in a while. Ugh. Wait till you see his gross face, I don't too. want to. I, like, never want to see it. I'm going to have to, like, blindly like the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was sentenced to 22 years in prison. From that date? From when he started serving no. at the beginning of this. No. I know. It counts time served from when he first was arrested no. for Gene's no. murder. No, that's not fair. So basically the max possible time they said would put him in <sighs> until maybe very, very early 2020. And the earliest that he could be paroled was 2014. Okay. Where is he today? He was paroled in late 2019 after some 20 years in prison. In May of 2020, the Daily Mail UK ran an article that was picked up from the Australian Associated Press that said that wife killer Tom Keir had met a naked woman on a nude beach only weeks after he got out. Yep, of course. Before convincing her to drink wine with him and have a, quote, kiss and cuddle. So nothing happened to this woman, apparently, but the prosecutor said that this violated his parole because actually he was not supposed to engage in any romantic relationship or sexual relationship for at least two years as part of his parole stipulation because, yeah, because of what the forensic psychiatrist said. So within weeks of his release, he was already trying to woo someone, but there was no evidence other than this one occasion and some notes that he had sent this woman that they were actually having a real relationship. So the judge reserved his decision, which I had never heard of before, but it basically means that they get to wait to make a final decision. It's not good or bad. So he got to continue living his life, though he was electronically monitored at that point. And I have not seen an update since May of 2020. So I believe hopefully that means that he has not dated or he at least hasn't killed anyone. And it seems like the nude beach lady found out who he was and ran for the hills. I mean, wife killer is a pretty uh, jolting title. Headline to yeah. find out the guy you met on a nude beach and you had some wine with and made out with had killed two of his wives. And it is it is a, a huge travesty that Rosalie did not get to have her conviction that she didn't get to, you know, even though we know that he killed her. And you can also chalk this up to, like I said, the racism of the time period and how yeah. she was portrayed in the media and in the trial. Yep. Which was deeply unfortunate and just proof that we all have to continue to work on our biases every day. But to finish on a spooky note, 
several times throughout the narrative. Like I said, Peter talks about Gene being there with him. And it's really compelling. I can't really do it justice. So if you guys check out the book, Seven Bones, Peter Seymour and Jason K. Foster. But also the ghostwriter, pun intended, had his own part to say in the like afterward. And he wrote, in our primary phone conversation, Pete outlines the amazing story that you've just read. And I remember driving to Pete's place to collect all the material that I'd need to complete the book for him. It was about nine at night and it had been raining quite heavily. I was thinking about how I'd write the story when a tremendous shiver ran up my spine and an overwhelming sense of someone else being in the car with me just came over me. I knew it was the girl in Pete's story, so I made a promise out loud. I said, okay, okay, I'll do my best to make sure your story is told. With that, the sense of someone else being in the car left me. When I arrived at Pete's house, I told him what had happened. It was only then that he told me that Gene had come to him as well. A few weeks later, when I was about halfway through rewriting Pete's story, I was sitting out in the front of my home having a coffee break, contemplating packing it in for the night, when an incredible gust of wind came up from nowhere and then died. I looked up to the sky, but there were no clouds, only stars, and decided that that would do me for the night. Suddenly, the gust returned, stronger and more ferocious than before, sending leaves and debris flying through my front garden. All right, all right, I yelled. I'll go back inside and do some more. As soon as these words had left my lips, the wind died again. I've now shared in Jean Angela Keir's story, and I'm proud to be the one who has refined it for Pete so that we can both share the story of a remarkable young woman whose life was so cruelly cut short. I hope you have taken many things from this book, but primarily I hope you have taken and will keep the idea of the preciousness of human life. We all have but one short moment on this planet. It is up to all of us to squeeze a life out of every day. Very well said. Yeah. And basically, guys, this is so crazy. So I am sure, I'm absolutely positive that one of you recommended this case to me and I cannot find it. So please tell me who recommended, reach out to us, DM us, email me, whatever. Tell me who it was because I sat down to write this story and I was so convinced that one of you had either sent me this book. I mean, we didn't have a PO box. So you couldn't have sent it to me. I must've ordered it. it. just sent me the title or told me about this case because I do not know where I got it. Usually I like Google things or I hear about it in the news or one of you guys sends it to me and I did not know about this case. So one of you must have. But when I sat down to write the story and I'm going through Andy, our list, our Google Doc, and then I'm going through the Facebook group recommendations, that pinned post, and I'm going through my email and I'm doing search words and I'm going through our social media, I could not find it. I could not find it anywhere. Jean told me about it. And it felt like this chill went up through my entire body. And so you guys have to debunk this, like, because I felt like Jean sent me (laughs) the story to tell you. And it was like, I'm still, I'm getting goose pimples now. And I ran in and showed Nathaniel my arms that were just like covered with goosebumps. You didn't say goosebumps yesterday. Okay, so guys, I already told this to Andy when I was writing it because it freaked me out so much. But I said, goose flesh. I was offended. You got all over me. You're like, no one calls it goose flesh. It's goosebumps. It's goosebumps. It's goose pimples. It's goose flesh. Okay. You could say goose flesh. I think goose flesh is even scarier sounding. Yeah. The Goosebumps series about being spooked is not called Goose Flesh. I don't know. I think it would have been better if it had. It'd be even creepier. (laughs) Goose Flesh. Oh, so that's our story today. I'll let you know next week when somebody definitely tells me they sent me this story. (laughs) And my 
my ghost story, my personal podcast ghost story is debunked. <laughs> However, in that moment, I really, I really did feel that way. In conclusion, when a ghost visits you to tell you to fight for justice or to write their damn story, you gosh darn better do it. Better do it. And then when she also keeps encouraging you to go on and on and on through all these appeals and mistrials and such, you gotta, you better keep going. You better keep going. The human spirit is sometimes alive even when the human part is not. <sighs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you guys so much. Love Bye. you. Bye.